We're going to be in the book of Judges, chapter 17. Book of Judges, chapter 17 is where we'll start this morning. But we are going to cover some ground. We're going to move a bit this morning. So Judges, chapter 17. When I was a kid, going to the movies was like a, it was a huge treat for me. It was a big deal. I remember the, the times we would get to go. I still remember a lot of the movies that we, we went and saw as like a, a whole family. That was a big deal to be able to go and spend all the money on the popcorn and all the money on the, the tickets and everything. So getting to go to the theater was a really, really, really big deal. I remember uh, that I would spend the night with my grandma in large part because... Uh, she was game to go to the late movie, and uh, we would, we, my parents would, would leave and go back home, and, and Grandma would be down for uh, taking me to, uh, to Tri-County Cinemas uh, in Oliver Springs and, uh, and go. And I still remember the, uh, this is going to make some of you all think that I'm a dinosaur, I still remember the pre-internet days and having to look up the phone number in the phone book for the movie theater and call and get the recording and listen to them go through the recording for every movie that was playing and for all the times that it was playing. And then I would write down what they were and then go uh, run and say, all right, here's what we got. Here's our choices. And uh, here's the ones that I can see. Here's the ones that I think my parents will let me see, and we'll, we'll watch these movies. This one's like a 9.30 start time, and, and Grandma will be like, okay, that works. And we would go, and, uh, and I, I, would, uh, I would get to go, and I, I, I love those. I've already told you before about how the uh, 1989 Batman changed my life. Uh, I loved that movie. It was my favorite. But here's the thing about, uh, about movies during that time frame, and I don't know if your kids are like this or not, but movies during that, that time frame, you know, we, we didn't have streaming anything. The movies we got were the movies that we got, uh, unless you got to go rent one, and, uh, and, and that, was a, that was a whole different experience. But I went through a phase from when I was about 7 to when I was about 12 that every movie that I had just seen immediately became my favorite movie. Like it immediately was, it, it, this is what we call recency bias, and every movie would become my favorite. And I, I, would, I would get so excited. I remember when Mighty Ducks came out. I was 12 years old, and I watched that, and I loved that movie. That movie was my favorite. I remember walking out thinking, that was, that was great. That was, that was awesome. Every time I saw these movies, I'd want to watch them again and again. I couldn't wait for the VHS to come out so that I could rent it, and then eventually we could uh, buy it. And I wanted everybody else to love them as much as I did. Uh, I wanted them all to be amazed. I wanted them to, to rehearse the scenes with me, to talk about how cool it was, to talk about the, the moment that, that Batman uh, you know, threw his smoke pellets and the, and the grappling gun came out and he disappeared away from the bad guys. I wanted you to talk to me about the flying V and the, the ducks going quack, quack, quack. I wanted to go into all of that. I wanted you to love the movie as much as uh, I did because I thought it was great. Inevitably, you know how this goes. No one likes it quite as much as you do. Uh, and then you walk away a bit more discouraged and a bit more cynical every time. Uh, and, uh, but that didn't stop me from trying. I wanted everyone else to, to love that. I'm going to tell you, I feel like the same kid today, right now, before we get to start 
the book of Ruth. As a, as a preacher, I am always trying to figure out how to get your attention. Especially, we're, we're told whenever you, 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 you study the, the way that preaching's supposed to work, that this moment right now, this first like three, five minutes, is the most important moment for the sermon. Either I get you hooked right now, or I've lost you for the whole time. And, uh, and I, am, I am decidedly like hit and miss on that one. It's just kind of the way that, that, that it is. But I, I'm always trying, how can I make this story land and how can I get your attention so that, that you listen to what I have to say because I believe that what God's Word says is important and that, that you need it as much as I need it. That's always my goal during this time. And honestly, I can't think of anything that I could say to you this morning that would capture your attention enough to where I would be like, you got to pay attention to this. You need to listen. It can't convey the sense of love and excitement that I have for this story. Every time that I read it, every time that I get the opportunity to preach it, I love it even more. It's just so beautiful. I, if I could plead with you to join me in this story just for the next few weeks, and that, that you would, much like me as a kid, that I, I, I would beg you to love this story as much as I do. And man, I hope you do. But before we get there, we've got to remember the, the, the mess we've been trudging through and what we've been covering so far. We've got to remember the last few weeks and the darkness of the book of Judges. Because the darkness of the book of Judges is a big part of the book of Ruth. It's, it's what makes the diamond shine so brightly against the blackness that is set behind it. And I'll be honest with you, I'm ready. I am tired of the darkness and, and preaching the darkness in the book of Judges. But before we get there, we've got just a little bit more that we've got to cover. And if you'll remember last week, we left off with our boy Samson, uh, who uh, was the final of the judges in the book of Judges. We looked at him and his final moment, kind of his suicidal end and the darkness that came as he destroyed the Philistine temple uh, and all that went with his life. And we've been in this, this book, and it is, it is one of the most brutal, confusing, sad stories that the Bible has to offer. And as we, as we looked at, at Samson, probably the most famous of all the judges, we saw a figure who is deeply tragic and flawed, strong and very impressive, but also broken on so many levels. He is the epitome of the title of our series, Shattered Saviors, the ultimate example of what the book of Judges is all about. A God who has not forgotten his people, but a people who have completely forgotten their God. And so God uses these increasingly broken judges to show his faithfulness as he still uses these, these frankly bad people to deliver his people. And it serves for us as the ultimate warning of what happens when we live as though we are our own God. If you'll remember, Samson's story is marked by his desire from the very beginning when he saw his bride that he wanted to have, a Philistine girl. Whenever he saw her, what he reported back to his parents was, I have to have her. She is right in my eyes. Even though God had been very clear from the very beginning that she was not right in God's eyes for Samson because she was a Philistine and a worshiper of other gods. But Samson is so far removed from God and from his people that there is no indication that he even hesitated. He ran headlong into the rebellion. He didn't fall. 
he ran into sin. And the book just goes from bad to really bad to epically bad. We've seen in the last few weeks the violence of Gideon killing his own people in revenge and anger. The setting up of, a, of an idol and a shrine to himself for them to worship. The outlaw Jephthah who was out in the woods and they come back to him to bring him back. And he, he, he achieves success but really it ends up being at the cost of his own daughter as he kind of institutes a child sacrifice in order to, to show how, how much he, he appreciates God giving him uh, this victory. He's so far removed from knowing how to worship Yahweh that he sacrifices his own daughter. He's so involved in the life of the pagan gods. And then we get to Samson's, uh, Samson's tragic life of anger and sex and arrogance and ultimately suicide at the end. You would think it can't get any blacker than that. When you read the book of Judges, you realize Israel's desire for a king made a lot of sense. They needed a king at this point on some level. But you also realize that they were so far away from God that any leader they would have put forward, any leader that they would have put out there on a throne would have dishonored God and it would have dishonored the nation that God had chosen, the people of Israel. The problem wasn't that they wanted a king, it's that they trusted one of these deeply flawed king stand-ins far more than they trusted a consistently faithful and good God. It wasn't that they wanted a king, it's that they wanted a broken savior because they could see him and they trusted that broken savior far more than they trusted the God who had always been faithful. So we finish Samson's story in chapter 16, uh, and and that's the last judge that we get to see in this book. He's the last of the judges, but he's not the last story. Now, I'll be honest, I thought about preaching through these last five chapters of the book of Judges uh, and spending kind of a little bit more time here, but these stories are so dark, they are so painful, they are so sad, I, I could not find a point to these stories other than to say, this is how dark it was. It's really the only reason that these stories exist. It shows just how evil the Israelites had become. You've got two stories. And these two stories uh, kind, of, kind of change the focus a little bit. Whereas the book of Judges so far has been about these outside threats to the people of Israel, right? So we've seen how the, these different uh, nations, the uh, Moab and the Philistines and all these different nations have ruled the people of Israel. God raises up a judge and whenever he raises up a judge, he delivers the people of Israel from this outside threat. But when you get to chapter 17, it's not an outside threat to the people of God that it's the most concerned. It's an inside threat that comes from within the people of God. The first is in 17 through 19, and it describes this private idol worship uh, that gets set up, and it escalates into a, a civil war between tribes, and it ends with a completely unsuspecting, completely innocent uh, city being completely burned to the ground and everyone in it slaughtered. It is dark, and it is ugly. The second story in uh, chapter 19 through 21 is maybe, I mean, right there along with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, the most disturbing, heartbreaking, disgusting story in Scripture. It is absolutely awful. Dark as can be. Sexual assault, assault, violence, brutal murder, an even deeper deeper civil war between the, the tribes of Israel. 
I honestly don't know that I could even stand up here and read it in front of you. That's how dark it is. It would be hard for me to get through, let alone preach about it. There's just no point in these stories other than to show the warring tribes within Israel and the full-on depravity on display in God's people. God's chosen people were to be a light to the nations, but the darkness has so swallowed them that there is no light to be seen. They are just as bad, maybe even worse, than the pagan worshipers that are around them. This section from 17 to 21 is bookended by two verses that summarize Israel and give us a glimpse into why the narrator is telling us this story at all. Two verses say the same thing, and this should sound pretty familiar for you, to you. Judges 17, 6 and Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, just like Samson. Samson showed us an early picture of what that looks like, and the nation of Israel shows us that, shows us that same sin when it is in full bloom. And it is an ugly, ugly picture. We touched on this last week. That refrain, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, is really the essence of sin. It is what sin is. When we decide to make our own rules, pursue our own agendas, and make our own judgments about what is right and wrong, good and evil, when we do that, we have removed God from his rightful place on the throne as the king, and we have uh, established ourselves as our own little king, our own little queen over our own little kingdom, and we have said, this is what will be right for us. That is the essence of sin. And even to make the point further, what you see is that when Israel does what is right in their own eyes, their culture, their lives, their joy, all of those things begin to fall apart and diminish, if not almost completely vanish. Rejecting God's good and right rule does not result in their lives getting better, but worse. Listen, this is one of Satan's most deeply embedded and manipulative lies that rejecting God will set you free, that rejecting God will gain you something, that it will open your eyes. This is what his promise was to Eve, right? Eat, eat the apple, eat the fruit, and then your eyes will be opened. Eat this, sin against God, and you will have a knowledge you didn't have before, and you will have more than you'd ever dreamed of, more than you ever realized. If you'll sin, it will enable you to pursue all that you've ever wanted. If you do what is right in your own eyes, then it will grant you so much. In short, that rejecting God will make you happy. The reverse image of that is that Satan gets us to believe that following God's rules, submitting to his agenda, obeying his commands, would rob us of freedom, of joy, and happiness. That God is this cosmic killjoy, and he is out to take away all the fun out of life. That he is the... And, and Satan is the, the master of ceremonies for the biggest party the universe has ever seen. And if you don't join him in his sin and his debauchery, then you are missing out. That is the lie of Satan. But the reality is that human flourishing, that your own personal flourishing, your joy, your contentment, and your purpose are not found in pursuing your own path. No matter what this world tells you, pursuing your own path will not bring you joy and happiness. It will bring you to ruin. 
You do not find your own personal flourishing, joy, contentment, and purpose in pursuing your own path, but in submitting to the good and right king. God isn't here to rob your joy. He's here to help you find it. Will that free you from suffering? Absolutely not. I make no promises this morning that it will make all of life peachy keen and all will go well. But it does mean that that suffering can be a means to an end, a means to an end of sanctification, a means to an end of even joy. It doesn't mean that our life will be perfect if we follow him. It means that God will use all that is in our lives to bring about our good and our ultimate joy. Doing what is right in our eyes is a ticket to misery and death. Don't ever let Satan convince you of anything else. So judges exist to teach us those lessons in graphic, disturbing ways. And this is how the narrator wraps it up, which is where we make our transition. He wraps it up with the final verse of the book of Judges that says, In those days in Israel... In those days, there were no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now we make our transition into this beautiful story, into the book of Ruth, made all the more beautiful by the darkness of Judges. If y'all ever go buy an engagement ring, and you want to look at the diamonds for the engagement ring, what they're going to do is they're going to bring out a piece of black velvet, and they're going to put that diamond on top of that black velvet, because that Black velvet is especially made to absorb all the light that it can. And they're going to shine this bright light on that diamond because against the, black, the blackness of the backdrop, the diamond shines even more brightly. And that's exactly how the book of Ruth works. So we, we're going to look in the book of Ruth. So you can turn now to the book of Ruth. You can move out of the book of Judges, put that book to the past there, turn out of the book of Judges, move to chapter 1 in the book of Ruth. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through this chapter. We're going to read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it. That's how we're going to go through this first chapter of the book of Ruth. I'll warn you, though, the sadness and the darkness is not quite over yet. It's, it, it opens with some of that, but we'll, we'll get to the goodness over the next few weeks. But we've got to open with a little bit more sadness and a little bit more darkness. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So Ruth begins, and the narrator wastes no time giving us the setting for the book. To me, this whole book plays out like a movie. I can see the thing play out in, in front of me. It opens up, and, and this says it's, it's in the time when the judges ruled. Now, we don't know exactly when, and even if, if it told us exactly who the judge was whenever this was all happening, and if it explained all of that to us, we would still be a little bit lost because the book of Judges, even though we read it, kind of chronologically, uh, the book of Judges really kind of, a lot of the Judges overlap. It's not a clear timeline of how the book of Judges plays out. And so we don't know exactly when this is, uh, but, but, but we do know that that's when this happens, right? This happens in the midst of all the darkness of the book of Judges and when all of Israel, when there was no king in Israel and when they all did what was right in their own eyes. Verse 1 also tells us that there is no food for them to have. There is a famine. 
Typically, when there is a famine in the Bible, it means one of two things, or maybe both. God is judging someone or a group of someones, or God is about to use this famine to do something big. This time, it's probably a little bit of both. The famine is going to play a big role in the beginning of this story, and it's really going to set the stage for all that happens for the rest of the book. Also note that the the, the story says that it begins in Bethlehem, which this side of Christmas and this side of Jesus should be a little bit of foreshadowing for you. Uh, it's also a bit of an ironic kind of play on words, whether it's intended in there or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but Bethlehem literally in the Hebrew means the house of bread. Uh, Beit is house, Lechem is bread. And literally that those two things means the house of bread. So we open the story and we see that things are just not as they should be. There is no bread in the house of bread. So let's keep reading in Ruth chapter 1 verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, not Klingons, despite what their name sounds like. They were from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So verse 2 introduces us to our next set of characters. This is, the again, the opening scene, giving us a little bit more backstory. You can just see these guys kind of like riding in in the movie and oh hey how you doing Melano how you doing Killian like you get to know these guys this is your introductory scene here at the very uh, beginning and it, it lays out that they were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah and if you don't know your Bible well and that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you then because whenever you read through that you're like okay it's from that place and that place and that place Bethlehem I've heard of Judah I think so I don't know how to say that other one it's just some weird names and some unknown places but the original audience for this book would have known very well what is going on here because all three of those things were also part of the backstory of the man who would eventually become King David so the original reader would have seen a bit of foreshadowing here as those places are listed off. Notice, though, that in verse 1, it says that they were sojourning, which is basically a long journey of discovery with the intent of returning once they found what they were looking for. But by the end of verse 2, they have decided that they will stay in Moab. They have decided they will remain in Moab. Now, Moab isn't quite the sworn enemy of Israel like the Philistines were. They weren't quite at that level, but they were, they were really, really close. They were definitely not friends. You remember Eglon, uh, our first in the story of the book of Judges. He's the fat king where they stabbed him with the sword and the sword disappeared. You remember that guy? He was, the, he was king of Moab. Uh, so these guys don't like each other. They're not friends. The Israelites, the, the Moabites, they're not friends. They don't, they don't like each other. Um, and there's a whole host of other problems if you go back and look at the history between these two uh, nations and these two uh, people. There's all kinds of stuff there, uh, and not the least of which was almost certainly that the Moabites worshipped a god named Moloch. Moloch was not a, not a good dude to worship. Child sacrifice would be the order of the day, uh, and this is what they did in Moab. The worship of Yahweh would have been essentially, as they decided to remain in this place, would have been uh, essentially uh, non-existent, if not altogether forbidden. So let's talk briefly about the decision that Elimelech makes. He's the dad, right? 
Let's talk a little bit about Elimelech's decision. He's doing what he has to do for his family, right? If there's no food, if there's, no, if there's a famine, then he's, he's got to go somewhere. If Bethlehem's out of food, shouldn't a father do what he needs to do to help his family survive? So what if he has to take another job in another town where they do child sacrifice and hate Yahweh? A guy's, a guy's got to do what he's got to do. His family's got to eat, right? Listen, I won't pretend that Elimelech doesn't have a difficult choice here. I won't pretend that there's not a lot of sleepless nights and that this was not, uh, this was not a hard thing uh, that, that he had to do. I'm sure this was a difficult choice. It's hard to watch your family be hungry and look around at the crops and they are nothing but dust. But I think at least part of our lesson to learn here is that it can be far easier to chase a job, a dollar, a title, or a little more comfort, or a little bit bigger house, or whatever, and do so at the expense of your family's spiritual well-being. It's always interesting and heartbreaking for me to talk with people over the course of the, the last decade or so who have, uh, who have left Jefferson City, they have left Providence, uh, people who were engaged in, in, a, in a big part of Providence who have left here uh, because they've gotten a promotion, they've taken another job, they've ended up somewhere else. It's always interesting for me to talk to them uh, because I, I always want to celebrate with them and say, man, that's awesome that God is doing that. And always inside, I break just a little bit because it's like, man, we don't, I don't want to lose somebody else. I want people to be able to stay here and, and continue to serve and, and to be a part of this place and this church. But it's always interesting to me whenever I talk to them and I say, and hear me, there's nothing wrong with taking a promotion or a job or moving somewhere. That's not what I'm knocking. But the question is, whenever I ask them, what's your plan for church, where you're going, what do you have in mind? Have you researched the churches there? Uh, do you know what, what is there? Are you sure you'll be able to get plugged in? Have you found a church that looks like it might be like-minded like we are or what you're looking for? Have you considered that? And almost every single time, the answer is, no, I haven't even thought about a church hasn't even crossed my mind to look for a church. Not every time, but most of the time. They just assume it will work out. And a lot of time it does. But sometimes it doesn't. And all I want to say is that leaving a pastor, is, all, all I want to be able to, standing up here as a pastor, all I want to be able to say is that leaving a church, moving to another city, moving your family to a different place where they will sit under different teaching and they will be a part of different, uh, different groups and different circles, maybe it just shouldn't be so easy. Maybe it just shouldn't be so easy and, and, and maybe the move shouldn't just be about promotions and titles and jobs and houses. Just consider the spiritual well-being. That's all I'm saying. And if God calls you to move and he calls you to go somewhere else, even someplace that's hard, then you better go. Just make sure you consider the whole picture before you go. Because in the end, that will determine, the, the spiritual life of your family will determine far more about your family and the coming generations of your family than any promotion you're going to take. So what happens when Elimelech and Naomi move to Moab with their two sons, Malon and Kilion? Well, there's some good, some bad. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other was Ruth. And li they lived there for about 10 years. So now Naomi is a widow. Elimelech has brought them to Moab. 
but he would never make it back to see his home country and his home people again. He would never see the city of Bethlehem again. Fortunately for Naomi, she is not alone. She may be a widow, but she has her two sons, and they've begun their own families, and they've taken wives. Moabite wives, which is not good, not strictly forbidden on the same level as like a Philistine wife, but close, Uh, still not really what God has in mind for his people, but at least she's not alone as a widow. At least she has her her sons and their wives. Verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died. So much for that. She doesn't have her sons any more, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. From a family of six to a family of three. Three very lonely widows in a very bad situation. This is not good for them at all. In this culture, to be a widow essentially meant that you were abandoned and alone. You were stuck. You could not get a job and provide for yourself. You could not uh, just kind of go out and be like, you know what, I'll just grab a job at Walmart and we'll make it happen and then we'll get through this thing. That was not an option for you. You were at the mercy of the people and the culture around you for them to show you mercy and provide for you. The problem is they're in Moab and they are a Jewish family at this point. Maybe they've got two Moabite daughters-in-law, but they are essentially a Jewish family because they have married into these people. So Naomi knows she has a big problem. She knows she needs to get back to her people if she's going to have any chance of survival at all. So look with me in verse 6. I'm going to read a huge chunk right here that covers a lot of ground. I'm going to read right here from 6 through 14. Then she, this is Naomi, uh, arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the, the, the famine is over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters of, daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. It's really a sad scene here at this point. You can imagine. Naomi says, I've got to go back, but you guys, you shouldn't go back. You you need to go back to your homes. I'm old. You're you're young. And, And the sadness is palpable here as they weep together over what they've experienced and the trauma that they have endured. And they feel like it's time for this to end and the relationship uh, to, to end. But in verse 10 it says, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you, they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband and the this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would they therefore refrain from, would you refrain from marrying? So basically what she's saying is, look, I'm old. I don't have a husband. Even if I were to have a child right now, because this is the way it was supposed to work, the, 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 the brothers of, uh, of, a, of, a dead, uh, of a dead husband were supposed to uh, basically take in the wife as a way to care for her. 
They were supposed to take in the widow, marry the widow, as a way to make sure that the family uh, line continued and that they were taken care of. And Naomi's whole point is, look, I'm old, and even if I had a kid, it's going to be a long time before that kid would be able to take you guys in, and you're not going to want to marry them anyway because that's going to be weird and awkward. So we don't want to do this. Let's not, let's not do this. Just go back home. It's going to be better for you. Don't wait. She says, no, my daughters, this is in verse 13, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So not just, she's not just feeling sorry for herself. Her heart breaks for these two daughters-in-law that she has. She says she's, she's bitter about it. She's angry about it. And then in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's a beautiful picture. It's a sad picture. Orpah hears the reasoning of Naomi, and she says, I, I get what you're saying. She kisses her. It's, it's effectively a, a, a goodbye kiss and says, I'm out. But Ruth, she'll have none of it. No goodbye kiss from her. She clings to her mother-in-law. It is heartbreaking to read all of this. Three women basically uh, lost and with no hope, weeping together. And as they begin their trek back, Naomi says, this isn't going to work, guys. We can't do this. You're young. Go back. It's going to be hard for you to start a family, but not impossible. Just go back to your homes. Go back to your people. They'll welcome you back. If you go back with me, man, I don't even know if they'll let you back in the city we turned our back on our people. I'm not even sure that they'll let, they'll let you back. Just go back to your people, and I will figure this out for myself. Naomi, in her pain and bitterness, is trying to do the right thing by these young women. Probably like teenagers at this point, young teenagers at this point. He's trying to do the right thing by these women. Finally, Orpah concedes. She goes back home. Ruth will not. She clings to her. And then we have some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture that you may have heard before. Maybe you had this, you've heard it at a wedding. Maybe you used this in your own wedding. Verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law, this is Naomi, said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's not an incidental little thing there. And to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Be smart, Ruth. Just go back. Don't don't do this. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, saw she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. It's beautiful. It's almost a poem in its, in its, in its, in its beauty, in, its, in, its craft, in the way it was crafted. It's, it's, it's a promise of love, of faithfulness. It's a, it's a testimony of conversion from worshiping uh, Moloch and these other gods to now being a Yahweh worshiper. She will no longer worship them. She's wholly committed to Naomi, to Naomi's people, and to Naomi's God. Her passion and determination is so strong. Naomi doesn't even try to fight it. And then the two women head back to Israel. It's a beautiful picture. I wonder if you, if you knew the context when you heard that in a wedding, that it's actually spoken between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then we get to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. The town gossip started chatting. The town gossip started to say, oh, now you're back from Moab. Now that we got something in the fields, you're back. Yeah? Well, where's your husband? Where's Elimelech? Yeah? Where, where is everybody? What are, now, welcome back. Glad to see you again. Where were you in the hard times? Where were you whenever it was rough? And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So Naomi is a name that basically means pleasant or sweet. So it's like her name is kind of like sweetie, pleasant. She's happy. She's, she's, cheer, he, she, she's cheerful. She's known to be that type of person. She says, don't call me that anymore. That doesn't fit who I am anymore. Don't call me that. Call me Mara because I am bitter with what God has done. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, just a, a fascinating little verse here. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I could preach a whole message out of that verse right there. I'm not going to, but I want to. There's a lot there. The irony of these verses. She goes from being pleasant to now being bitter. She says she went away full, but what do we know about what she, what, what she was like when she went away? She was empty. It was a famine. Her cupboard was empty. There was no food. She went away empty. But she says she went away full. Naomi now realizes that food was not the primary thing she should have been worried about. There were bigger things in life. For now, she is truly empty. She has no husband. She has no sons. One of her daughters-in-law is gone. She's bitter. There's a whole sermon in there. So far, the book of Ruth hasn't started out much better than the book of Judges. It's pretty dark. It's pretty rough. Maybe not quite as ugly and brutal, but still painfully sad and seemingly devoid of all hope. So what's so beautiful about this story? I want you to look at one more verse with me, and I, can't, I love, 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 love how this chapter ends. One more verse. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they began the chapter leaving Bethlehem because the house of bread had no food, but now by the end of chapter 1, they are back in Bethlehem, the place of God's people. They are back in Bethlehem, and the narrator kind of draws our, 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 our view. Like, I can just see this playing out like it's the end of a TV episode, and, and, and you just see them starting to bring out the, uh, the, the work and the sickles for the harvest, for the barley harvest. So they, they, the, the chapter begins. It's bleak. It's dark. There's a famine. It's empty. There's nothing there. It's in the time when the judges ruled but by the time you get to the final verse of chapter 1, our gaze has shifted a little bit, and it's time for harvest. No longer is the emptiness there now. It's full. The barley harvest is here. It's a beautiful picture. There's food again in the house of bread, and Naomi and Ruth have just gotten back into town. Now listen, I have wrestled for weeks trying to figure out how to end this sermon. 
I want to give a full-on gospel message and point you straight to Jesus and talk about all the ways that all this is about Jesus. But I also want to let this story play out just a little bit. I want to preserve a little bit of the tension that would have been there for the original storytellers, just four chapters long. And so I want, I want the story to play out just a little bit so we can see God's careful handle, handiwork. So, so I'll, I'll simply say this this morning. The book of Judges is painfully dark seemingly devoid of all that is good and hopeful. But the book of Ruth is going to show us that even in the midst of deep national sin and tragedy, even in the midst of personal sin and lack of spiritual discernment from Elimelech and Naomi, even in the midst of deep suffering and bitterness of Naomi and Ruth, God never stopped working. He cannot and will not be stopped. He is always working. I want you to think about how dark the book of Judges has been. I want you to think about how terrible it is. If you read the the last five chapters of the book of Judges, you would say there is no God anywhere in that place. But he's always working. Always For you and me this morning, we can rest in that truth. My sin, my failure, my nation's sin, my church's failures, my suffering, my pain, my loneliness, my bitterness, none of it can stop God from doing His work. None of it. He continues to work, not just in spite of my sin, not just over top of my sin, but in order to actively redeem me from my sin. As Israel was going darker and darker, God's light was being carefully crafted to shine brighter and brighter. Not by his people, not by some priest tucked away in a church that was just living it the right way and he's just got to come out and say it. No, no, no. This was God alone doing this work. This was God alone preserving his people. This was God alone taking the darkness of the people of Israel and saying, I'm not through with you yet. There's still a light to be shown. You cannot stop God. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 26 says, this is the purpose that was purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that stretched it out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? The answer that that is assumed is no one. You cannot stop his purpose. Isaiah 46 verse 8 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Nothing, 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 nothing can stop God, not even you, not even your sin, not even the blackness of this world, not even the brokenness and the fallenness of this world, not even the rebellion against him that says we will be our own God. We will do what is right in our own eyes. We will do all of these things because we are our own little gods and we are worried about our own little kingdoms. Even that in his face, as we spit in his face and, 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 and try to say that we would be a better king of our life than you would be God, even that does not stop him. He continues to work and he continues 
to do his purpose. His purposes will come to pass. They will come to pass. And praise God, he has set his mercy and affection on us. And his mercy and his affection will come to pass. His grace and forgiveness will come to pass. The darkness of the book of Judges and the darkness of our own hearts cannot thwart his mercy and his love. John says it this way, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not come, overcome it. So while I hesitate to do this, what I'm going to say is come back next week. Let's see how this light gets a little bit brighter. And then come back the next week and let's see how this light gets a little bit brighter. And let's see just how bright this light can get. And how beautiful the gospel is when we see it fully. Let's pray. Father, this morning we cling to the truth that you cannot be stopped. Father, this morning we cling to this truth because we know we know how dark our own hearts can be. We know how dark the world around us can be. We know the brokenness. We know the pain. We know the suffering. And we know that we can be stopped. So the idea that you would not be stopped is foreign to us. It doesn't make sense to us. Our mercy, our grace, our love, it is finite. It has an end. It has a place where it stops. Yours does not. We don't understand that. We can't fathom that. And yet you give us your word and you give us stories that show that it's true. So Father, I ask this morning that you would open our hearts to that truth. And that there would be nothing that stops you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.